You're listening to Medicine for the Resistance. So we're here um, talking with Andre <laughs> Smiles um, about Indigenous geographies and I took my grade 10 geography. That was the extent of my geography training, which means I learned about um, glacial movement and labeling rivers and and all of that stuff. Well, I mean, first off, just the idea of indigenous geographies um, from a land back perspective is really interesting because colonial borders are one thing, biozones are another thing. And so it just seemed like a real, this really fascinating topic that I know almost nothing about. So why don't you introduce yourself, uh, explain a little bit about your work, and then, and then we'll get into um, kind of what, what we mean when we're talking about Indigenous geography. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so my name is Dr. DeAndre Smiles. I use uh, he, him pronouns as well as the Ojibwe Moen um, general pronoun Ween. I am a citizen of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. I'm of Ojibwe, Black, and settler ancestry, uh, specifically Swedish on my mother's side. My mother was um, Ojibwe and Swedish. My father was an African-American man from Oklahoma. And so I am currently an assistant professor of geography at the University of Victoria. I'm out on the west coast of BC, Canada. Um, what other interesting facts about me? I'm originally from Minneapolis, uh, did, a, did a bachelor's degree in geography um, at a tiny little state university that probably nobody's, nobody's heard of in Minnesota, um, did a master's degree in global indigenous studies at the University of Minnesota, um, and did a PhD in geography at Ohio State, uh, where I also did a postdoc for a year as a, as a history postdoc. Um, other kind of interesting things about me. I, I tend to not think of myself as a super interesting person. Um, so usually I'm at a loss about this. I also also sometimes um, trying to talk about myself is really hard, but that's perfectly all right. So um, probably the coolest thing about me um, are probably, you know, the people surrounding me, right? Uh, married to a wonderful woman for almost two years now. We have a cat. Um, that's probably what I'm Besides uh, posting a lot of things about indigenous geographies on Twitter, I'm also well known for posting photos of my cat um, quite often. So I do that. Um, I live out in Victoria. Um, most of the time, I'm actually talking to you tonight from Columbus, Ohio, where my wife is still here doing a doctoral degree at OSU, uh, back for our reading break and, and doing, some, doing some other kind of appointment type of things. Um, avid musician. Um, yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much me in a, in a nutshell. I mean, obviously there'd be far much more that we'll talk about here in this interview, but specifically when it comes to indigenous geographies, because that's what I really describe myself as, my interests in that work are multifaceted to say the least. And so there's kind of a couple of key strands of my work that I really have drawn upon. And the first one is what we would call critical indigenous geographies, right? Like bringing the way that Indigenous peoples engage with space and place into conversations with power and race and economics and capitalism and colonialism and all of these things. Um, the other strand is um, what, what we would call in the United States like tribal cultural resource preservation, um, probably north of the border in Canada would be, you'd probably use the term, you know, indigenous resource management or a cultural resource management. And so a lot of my work over the last, oh, six years of my, my 
education and then my academic career have been um, focusing on the ways that tribal nations in the U.S. and First Nations in Canada and Indigenous nations around the world have found very creative and unique ways to protect um, cultural sites such as burial grounds against development and disturbance. That's been, that was the focal point of my dissertation. And what I'm doing now at UVic is bringing in some of my other interests, like such as science and technology studies, um, political ecology, or the studies of how politics and power engage with the natural environment, Mm-hmm. and Indigenous research ethics um, and exploring the ways that these Indigenous nations are now using the lessons that they learn from defending the dead and applying that to more than human uh, relatives, such as, you know, the land, water, animals, plants, um, especially in an era of uh, anthropogenic uh, climate crisis that it, it seems like we as Western global Northern society seem to have the throttle down like at full and are hurtling ourselves straight into this. And I think it's important with that where you see a lot of discourse um, nowadays about, oh, well, the world is ending. We need to look at, you know, colonizing space and, you know, what are we going to do when the world ends? And I, I draw upon really, really awesome scholars like Kyle White and other Indigenous scholars, especially a lot of Indigenous women and two-spirit and queer thinkers that say, well, Indigenous peoples have already lived through the apocalypse, right? Like we have already seen the apocalypse happen on our lands and in and, and the ways that colonialism and capitalism seeks to sever us from that connections. And so maybe if folks actually listen to Indigenous peoples, we might be able to offer something about how we can deal with apocalypse and how it's not necessarily the end of the world, but maybe an opportunity for us to reframe how we are in relation with the world. And so that's work that I do. Um, I'm starting up a lab, a geography lab at UVic in that regard. We call ourselves the Geographic Indigenous Futures Lab or GIF Lab for short. Um, I say we, the lab's mainly me right now, but I'm recruiting graduate students to work with me and work in the lab. So if you're an indigenous student who's really interested in space and place and you want to go get a master's in geography, um, I'll I'll make sure to drop my contact information here with the hosts. Um, Definitely come talk to me. I'm recruiting for fall 2022 now. Um, So I'll leave it there because otherwise I could do the time-honored Ojibwe tradition of kind of going on and on and talking for a while. But we have... I'm sure you have some some questions you want to throw my way, and I'd love to just have a conversation with both of you. So thank you for having thank me. Thank you for that. You know, it's interesting. I just left the shores of BC um, on Saturday. I was on the west side um, visiting my family, my daughters out there. And uh, the one thing that I will say about being in BC, especially in the Vancouver area, we were right in Burnaby, um, North Vancouver, like we're around some places there, um, is that you you pick up the land speaks. You know, there's there's no doubt that there is a sense about the space of BC that feels old and nurtured and um, loved and that energy, that space of being in that can only have been curated by those who have known and understood this land. And interestingly enough, I was, I was there spending time with my granddaughter and I, you know, Halloween was coming up and she mentioned the idea of a zombie apocalypse. 
And so I thought it was so funny when you uh, mentioned how we understand the land, because what I had turned to her and said is, she was like, what if there's a zombie apocalypse, Manny? And I said to her, let me tell you something. We people of indigenous and of color, we've been there and done that. We don't know nothing about the apocalypse is going to sway us. And so um, she looked at me and she was like, wow, is that true? And I said, look at where we are. This land is eons old. It has existed before us and it will exist after us. And there are some of us that do understand this space. So with that, DeAndre, my question for you is, are we listening anymore? Do you believe, and it sounds like, you know, I'm, I, I kind of feel that you may go this way, that the, the ears are now ripe to truly hear the voices that are, have always been and understood meaning ours? So yeah, that's a really, really great question, Carrie. I think that we are definitely <clears throat> in a position where the ears are more open than they were probably a generation or two ago. Um, I mean, one of the things that I deal with as an Indigenous geographer is still this, this, this overarching kind of thought that, well, you know, why do you study Indigenous geography? Um, you know, are there Indigenous people left? I think about um, in my PhD program, uh, being at a departmental happy hour and having a fellow grad student um, decide that I was going to be the person to try to sharpen their theoretical claws on and say, you know, why do you do indigenous geographies? Didn't, didn't colonialism win? And I'm, you know, I'm like, well, it didn't because I'm standing here right in front of you right now, you know, right? Like, but, you know, I, these are the things that we have to deal with. I think that in the current political climate that we find ourselves here in North America, particularly, I think that people are starting to realize that indigenous peoples have a lot to say about how to live in relation with the environment. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, it's becoming more than the romanticized, oh, yes, Indigenous peoples are these like, you know, very deeply spiritual folks that are out there, you know, living in community with the, with the, with the animals and things like that, you know, this very kind of pseudo um, spiritual environmentalist BS that, that really infantilizes Indigenous peoples and kind of places us as part of, of the environment. And what they're starting to realize is, oh, no, Indigenous peoples have, you know, these really complex systems of environmental stewardship. Um, in particular, some of the, my colleagues do really, really great work on, you know, ecologies of fire management and stewardship or land, you know, stewardship that are based upon, you know, longstanding, you know, worldviews and ontologies and epistemologies that have predated colonization, right? Um you know, uh, in, in particular in BC, you know, having just dealt with the, you know, these massive fires that burned across the province this summer, I had a, a pyrogeographer who's from a tribe in, in, in California come into my class um, just a couple of weeks ago. And he talked about fire and he said, yeah, when I go around and I talk to people about fire, for example, right, their first inclination is like, fire in forests and fire in the environment is bad, right? Like you don't want wildfires and things like that. And he says, no, if you actually do it right and you actually do do it properly and you don't just, you know, and it isn't just some out of control fire, but it's done with an eye on the ecosystem and things like that based on these cultural values that other tribal nations have, have thought about, you can find that fire is like a really beneficial thing, for example, and it blew my students' minds. Mm -hmm. um, I think the obstacle that we are facing right now, though, with this kind of opening of the ears, it's not that people are, aren't willing to listen. 
what we oftentimes have to deal with is that we, we still have to deal with ideas of, of theft of Indigenous knowledge, for example. So right now, I think we're kind of, we're, we, we go in and out of this, this framework where settler academics and settler policymakers, governmental leaders, like all of a sudden, um, you know, and I've noticed this in Canada more than the United States, right, where all of a sudden, it's really fashionable to be down with Indigenous issues, right, where it's like, you know, oh, yes, we actually want to listen to you. But the type of listening that they do is based upon, okay, so how can I use this knowledge to help further my career? How can I use this knowledge to take it and I can use it to get grant funding or I can use it to get accolades that don't go back, that don't uh, trickle down to the communities that did this, right? How can I listen in the case of some academics? How can I listen so that I can use it against them and kind of shoot back at them? Oh, well, you know, your, your forms of knowledge are not scientifically rigorous, right? Like you have to think about the science. I think the challenge is going to be actually listening and mastering the art of listening without preconceived thoughts about how you're going to respond and how you're going to act, right? Like listening and actually taking what people have to say in mind and, you know, not thinking, oh, well, I'm just going to listen and then I'm going to get a word in after that, but thinking, okay, maybe I might have to sit with what they've said, especially if it's things that make people uncomfortable. I think we as as Western, a Western, quote, Western global Northern society are really, really quite bad at sitting with discomfort. Like we, it's something that we want to get rid of. And a lot of times that discomfort is what you have to sit with. And that's actually where true growth kind of comes out of, right? When you deal with those, those awkward moments or the moments where you kind of feel like, oh, the community is kind of taking me to task here, right? Like, I think we all kind of know that, right? Like, I think mm -hmm. about, um, I think about the times when my mother, like, you know, that's this strong Anishinaabekwe, um, you know, definitely let me know what's up. I mean, she, she raised me um, with tough love sometimes. And, you know, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, this doesn't feel really good. And now that I'm um, still, you know, I'm, I just turned 31 this year and I still feel like I'm still pretty, you know, I still have so much left to, left to learn in life. I'm like, I'm really glad she did that because those are the moments where I actually kind of grew and kind of learned things. Right. And so I think that that's going to be the next step for listening is, you know, you listen not to capitalize or to exploit. You don't listen just for, you know, your kind of ego's sake, but you actually listen and you almost towards a point where you kind of pass the mic to these communities, to these indigenous peoples, and you allow them to start kind of guiding the conversations going forward. I wanted to start with your essay on George Floyd. Um, yes. Just because it's, it's an interesting way of thinking about indigenous geographies and urban spaces, because when we think of indigenous places, we always think of rural spaces. So, you know, so I, I kind of wanted to start there. It's an urban space. It's, it's a way of thinking about the way that the state acts on our bodies. And then you had another essay about autopsy. And, and those two put to, those two reading one after the other was kind of really did interesting things in my brain. Um, just because the, and, and then the last one about radio just, just seems like a nice place. <laughs> it feels like life. <laughs> Plus, it's kind of what Carrie and I do. It's not really radio, but it's independent Indigenous media. So yeah, so that George Floyd piece was really, I didn't realize that you were actually from, from Minneapolis. Yep. Uh, born, born and raised for the first few years of my life. Um, as a matter of fact, the 
the apartment that I, I spent um, the probably the longest time in in South Minneapolis is about um, four blocks north of where George Floyd was murdered. Um, one of those things. And so I, I remember, you know, the, the, the little convenience store cup foods that he was killed in front of. I remember that as a, as a little kid passing by that. And I know the intersection quite well. And, um, and then kind of another, another sort of panel that I talked about, about this, I was like, it's actually quite funny kind of taking a look at that, that apartment because in 1994, right. My, my single mother was able to afford the rent in that apartment. I mean, we were, we were pretty poor, right? I think there was one bedroom. And so I got the bedroom and my mom and then my dad, when he was around, slept on an air mattress in the living room. Um, and we were lucky enough that we were right next to Powderhorn Park, which is a major center for South Minneapolis as far as like recreation and things like that. Um, I took a look at that apartment now. I, 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 can't, I can't figure we paid more than probably 500 or 600 bucks a month for it back then in the early 90s. And now it's it's pushing like $2,000 a month. And there's like a laundry list of all these requirements, right? That you have to make so much of this income and you can't do this and you can't do that. And I'm like, man, it's some shitty ass apartment in South Minneapolis, right? And you're, <clears throat> you're acting like this is like, you know, a condo in Vancouver or something like that, because now it's across from a park and, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, Minneapolis is now cool again to folks to, to live in, right? Um, you know, it's like I grew up in Minneapolis in the mid 90s, like we were like the most kind of like wonder bread, like Midwestern city. I mean, it was cold all the time. And Minneapolis was not cool um, back then. I mean, it was cool for for a lot of reasons, right? But kind of dominant society kind of viewed it as all that Midwestern city. Um, and then, uh, you know, around the time, unfortunately, I think like when Prince passed away and things like that, all of a sudden people are like, oh yeah, Minneapolis might actually be a really kind of trendy place. And now you see that gentrification, but that's all kind of an aside of just kind of the changes that, that have happened. But yeah, my family's, my family, uh, my grandmother moved um, her kids down from the res from Leech Lake in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s. And they've, um, there's been members of my family that have uh, lived in Minneapolis ever since. So if we have any any walk viewers or listeners from South Minneapolis, uh, we have many generations of uh, South High School Tiger alumni in my family. So, yeah. I love that. To build on what you said, talked about gentrification, you talk about the way certain places are framed as safe and dangerous, yeah, depending on how the dominant society sees them, right? Because there are neighborhoods. So we know how to live in them. And then even us, like, you know, Ibram Kendi talks about this in, in, in one of his books, that even though he was from a neighborhood that the dominant culture may have thought was dangerous, he thought it was safe and it was this other neighborhood. And, and that is such an interesting sentiment everywhere we go, because once again, taking it back to being in BC um, last week, what I thought was fascinating is that parts of Burnaby in BC is, or parts of Burnaby are considered um, not necessarily the best areas. And when I drove through what they, what's considered the hood in um, Burnaby, I was, I, I just couldn't fathom this. That most, a lot of those um, places had Land Rosers and Mercedes Benz outside in the, in the lot, you know, like outside in everybody's driveways. There was nothing that would have been like the stereotypical markers of what we would consider a hood. And so for me, what it really created in my space was this 
this, uh, you know, taking an inner look at how we take these perceptions of what we do call hood versus what the reality is. And so I think it fits really well into the question that you're asking, Patty, this idea of how, you know, the bigger culture can create these ideas or these lines, these red lines that make certain areas supposedly distasteful. I, I could not, I'm talking beautiful, you know, houses on a couple of acres, neighborhoods, like it just, it made no sense to me, but this was considered the hood. A couple of shootings that happened and all kinds of things there. Very interesting demographic or way of thinking about it. It really is. Uh, in terms of Minneapolis, right? I mean, in my lifetime, I've seen neighborhoods um, that were used to be considered gritty become suddenly these really hip places, right? Um, for example, Northeast Minneapolis, or as, as a lot of kind of hipsters like to call it, Northeast Minneapolis. I mean, back in the 1990s, right, this was kind of an industrial neighborhood, kind of gritty, really blue collar. Um, it, you know, there was nothing sexy about Northeast Minneapolis, you know, fast forward 20 years, now you have craft breweries and yoga studios and, all, and, and places where you can buy kombucha and things like that. And now everybody wants to live over there. Um, you know, the, the kind of the, the biggest thing when I talk about the Twin Cities that people, um, they, they shake their heads, um, even in Minnesota, when I talk about it is, I always, I always kind of bring up, I'm like, it, during the era of Jim Crow segregation in the South, the Worst segregation in the United States often was not in cities like Birmingham or Atlanta or Charlotte or places like that. The worst segregation oftentimes were in cities like Minneapolis and St. Paul because it had that veneer of being in the North where, you know, the North fought against slavery in the Civil War and kind of the, you know, the American mythos and, you know, the North, you know, through the, the great migration and things like that, the North was viewed as this, this by white Americans is like, oh, yes, yeah, see, we're opening our doors to these black Americans from the South. Um, they would get to the North to find racist uh, covenants in real estate deeds and redlining and things like that. Um, you know, one of the biggest, the biggest proponents of segregation in the United States was Robert Moses, right? One of these great urban planners that we hold up is like, look at all these things he did in New York City. Well, what he did in New York City and other cities is designed highways to run right through black neighborhoods and to divide white neighborhoods from black neighborhoods, right? It was like the, the 20th century version of the railroad tracks, like the other side of the freeway. Um, in, in St. Paul in particular, the Rondo neighborhood, probably one of the most vibrant black neighborhoods in Minnesota, um, found itself um, under under the under the bulldozer in the 1960s when they decided, well, Interstate 94 needs to go someplace. Um, we're going to build it right through the middle of this neighborhood. Um, there's nothing left of Rondo besides some street signs saying where it was. Um, and so, yeah, it's it, you know, North Minneapolis, which is probably you know the area of Minneapolis that is identified the the most with blackness, and also has this reputation of oh, this is that's where all the shootings happen, right? You don't want to be in North Minneapolis. Um, I'm like, well, you know what? What happened was that um, you know these processes of segregation and things like that ended up instigating race riots, right? And then white Minneapolitans kind of said, oh, we're moving out to the suburbs because North Minneapolis used to be one of the wealthiest areas of the city. And then after these race riots um, that were caused by, you know, neglect and all of these, in all of these different things, uh, white, Min white Minnesotans said, okay, so we're going to move out to these new suburbs and, and leave black, Min black Minneapolitans in North Minneapolis, which then 
became kind of economically segregated and left and left largely to its its own plan kind of obsolescence, right? Anytime, you know, the, the city will be really quick to take any credit for like any kind of, you know, major positive developments in North Minneapolis saying, oh, yep, you see Minneapolis is this super diverse, super welcoming city. And a lot of times it's like, no, that happens at a community grassroots level, right? Um, it's the, the kind of a funny story that I think I told in the article is that around, you know, around the time of the protest, right? Um, in Minneapolis, around the police precincts, you you see you saw a lot of folks from uh, rural Minnesota in the suburbs kind of jump on Facebook and say, "Oh, see, look how look at those look at those quote thugs rioting down there, right? Like that's why that's why I'll I'll never go to Minneapolis, even though you know these are the kind of folks that go to country music concerts at the baseball stadium like once a year and then like leave and don't come to the city otherwise." And it, it's, and it, but that drives a dominant narrative, right? So people, um, my mother lives in North Minneapolis and people are like, isn't she like, you know, isn't she like scared of living there? Like, isn't that dangerous? I'm like, no, it's not dangerous, right? It's like any other big city. Like you, you go there, you, you, you handle your business. Um, You know, it, it's, you know, I can, if I wanted to go, if I'll put it this way, right? It's like, you, if you go looking for trouble, trouble is going to find you. And it's going to find you, whether that's in North Minneapolis or that's in 50th in France, which is like the fanciest neighborhood in Minneapolis, right? Southwest Minneapolis. Um, but it just comes down to kind of the ways that, you know, white settlers, quite honestly, kind of paint these kind of narratives. Um, kind of one example that I don't think I talked about in that paper is, um, you know, the fact that Minneapolis is Dakota land. And when they talked about renaming Lake Calhoun, Bidet Makaska, um, it was it was kind of that moment for the first time where people kind of saw um, how much masks could come off at, in this moment, right? You had these people that lived next to the lake that, that was, you know, it's called Lake Calhoun and, and um, it was named after a politician who was a major proponent of, of the system of slavery in the United States and, and helped to you know, support it and strengthen it in the in the early 1800s, you saw people kind of coming out saying, why why do we re need to rename this, right? Why do we need to re rename it to Bede Makaska? And you saw folks saying, oh, it's going to bring down our property values, right? Like that that time-honored, like, you know, dog whistle for, oh, it's going to, it's, you know, if it's viewed as anything other than white American, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt us. And people were like, wow, those people are being are being like super racist and folks like me are saying those are the same people that that would be you know flying pride flags out in front of their house and having you know black lives matter signs in their front yards and saying like everyone is welcome here you know because they are in a neighborhood where they don't have to confront diversity right diversity is something that is far away from them and they're like oh yes it can stay over there like we'll support it but we wouldn't actually want it coming into our neighborhood and then when you know something as simple as a name change you know is threatening enough to them that they can be like oh well you know if that's going to bring down the neighborhood we don't want that and so i think kind of the whole kind of saga and really what i tried to kind of attest to in this is that well you know, this really kind of ripped away kind of that veneer of the North um, in the minds of a lot of people as being this really kind of a non-racist place, right? I'm like, it's just as racist as the South. And if we understand that and we and we think about those kind of geographies of race as being something that is nationwide versus just, you know, just focused on the South, then we can actually really understand, uh, quite honestly, kind of how fucked it is in the United States for a lot of folks and how we can really take concrete steps to try to push back against that, just like the 
the people that went out there on the streets in Minneapolis um, really, really tried to do Minneapolis and many other cities as well. You know, when, when I think about, you know, all of what you just said, you're, it, what comes to mind, I think, about this whole year, I've been, I've been spending some time um, doing some reflection on like cycles, how I see things cycling in and cycling out, right? And I, I really feel when you've mentioned that pulling back the curtain, like that idea of the veneer um, being stripped away, I think that's very profound. Over, over the last couple of years, I think we've all had to co go internally and, and or you can't gaze at the scenery mm -hmm. and not recognize that there is much that is not what it seems. And, and as much as we may have settled in some complacencies about the way that we have viewed the relationships that we have with each other, mm -hmm. or that we've even had with the land, because nobody can say that Mother Earth is not saying something back to us now. Um, <laughs> you know, what you started with, with the sense of we must listen we must pull it back and really be willing to see it for all the dirt and grime that exists. And it, are we ready now to add some soap and water, hopefully it's, it's environmentally sound, and start to wipe away, start to wipe away at some of this dirtiness that exists. And, and with that, like what, where do you, where do we fit? as people who, who may have this different viewpoint because we've been mired in some of that grime for a long time. Where do you think we can move ourselves or show up? You know, we, we're normally the ones that do, we, we come with the grit, you know, um, what are they called? The, you know, the Mr. Clean magic, uh, magic chalks or whatever. We normally come in to do that deep cleaning. Where do you think we fit in for that? So yeah, so so people, so people like us, right, that are used to really kind of doing that deep cleaning and kind of, you know, doing that kind of labor. Um, I think that um, I really point to the next generation of really badass Indigenous and Black and other, you know, scholars of color, activists of color, community members of color. Um, you know, I feel like with every succeeding generation, we say, you know, we're we're becoming more visible and we're become we're we're ending up in places that we were not intended to be, right? Um, I think about, um, as an Indigenous geographer, um, I think about 20 years ago, you would not see any of us in tenure track positions in, a, in, in institutions. I think maybe, you know, I think for, for Black geographers um, that, are, that are doing um, equally, if not more badass work, it, it would be the same thing, right? I think that you wouldn't see us. It, it, it might be one or two in some vision, you know, very forward-thinking, visionary kind of departments. But, um, you know, in, in my own departments where I feel very, very fortunate to be, um, it took a decade to, to do an Indigenous hire, right? Uh, and they're, they are so happy to, to have one. But, it, you know, we geography in particular, like we can be such a such a kind of a, a backwards kind of looking discipline and where we're constantly kind of tied to the past and kind of still trying to maneuver how to bring bring geography into the present. And, you know, when that when those conversations happen of like, well, what does the future of geography look like? I always kind of say, 
look to like the black, the indigenous and the other scholars of color, especially the ones from the global South, right? They are the ones, we are the ones. I I, I try not to use we, cause I'm like, it's gonna be all these people that are in school right now that are going to really use the work that we've done as a launching pad to really do some really truly exciting things. And I think that happens outside of academia as well. Um, you know, the, the saying that often gets put in, you know, um, you see it on memes on Facebook and you also see it on Twitter a lot, you know, you know, these indigenous students, these indigenous children are, you know, quote, our ancestors' wildest dreams. I'm like, you know, it might sound kind of hokey, but I'm like, that's actually really super true, right? It's it's the truth. Hey, I, I haven't bought my t-shirt yet, but I so want one. I so want one because that state saying being our ancestors wildest dreams is the truth. Mm -hmm. And you touched something that I think is so important. And I just wanted to spend maybe a second here is, you know, DeAndre, tell us what brought you to geography. And you know why? I was speaking to my husband recently and we were talking about, um, you know, some of the, the rappers that are existing, like the King Vons of the world. And, you know, some of the spaces where, you know, we've seen black folk show up in what has been our traditional ways out of being. And yet you said something to me that I thought was so profound when you mentioned that, you know, being a black geographer has been, uh, you know, you're trailblazing in certain ways. You're, you're creating and showing up in ways that you may not have been able to before. And I think that message is so important for those of us coming up, though, not, not us, I'm a little more seasoned, but those coming up, like my grandchildren's um, generations coming up uh, to recognize that there are these opportunities that you don't gotta be in the NBA and, you know, a mumble rapper to be able to show some semblance of success. Could you tell us a little bit about how you did it? What brought you there? You know, because geography, you know, it's a geography. <laughs> so that's you a great question. That's a great question. Sorry to sorry to interrupt there. I um yeah, I, I resonate with that. Uh, there's a lot of really, really good basketball players in, in my family. Actually, um, I was not one of them. I was a swimmer in high school, actually. So I've always kind of been that person that's kind of kind of walked a bit of a different path. And so there's two people. Well, really one person and then a community that I really want to credit with kind of um, inspiring me to take the path that I that I've taken. And so the first one is is my mother. Um, so why I really like geography is my mother um, from a very early age, um, she she was always really big on education. Um, it was something that she she felt very strongly about. Um, you know, one of the things that she would do when I was in high school, as she said, um, there was no question of like, oh, what am I going to do when I when I graduate high school? She's like, no, you're going to college, right? You're you're going to go to college. And so she would wake me up every morning, um, and and she would say like, oh, you know, good morning, kid who's going to go to college, right? But that the framework of that started when I was two or three years old and she would bring me to the library in South Minneapolis, right? And I would check out books and I would read the newspaper. Um, I was reading from a super early age and I would get maps, right? I also would like look at maps and I, I really, really enjoyed maps because it was always, it was always really fun to look at them and imagine that I was going places, right? Like tracing the roads and kind of thinking, what would it be like to go here? What's this place like? It, it really inspired a curiosity about different places. Um, you know, growing up in growing up as we did, you know, I didn't really get a lot of opportunities to travel, but we, when we did, I always really enjoyed it. I remember we went out to 
went out to an indigenous march in Colorado Springs in like the mid 1990s, right? Um, about, you know, honoring treaty rights and things like that. And I really, really loved it. Um, I remember having my map kind of tracing the path that we were taking and learning, you know, seeing the new cities on, on street signs and things like that. Um, and it's just something that I, I always kind of picked up because of that, because she exposed me to it at an early age. Um, I found that geography classes in, in elementary and middle school and high school were the classes that I got easy A's in, right? So, um, one story that I often tell on Twitter is I almost got into trouble in high school because um, I wrote a paper about South Africa and I had researched it so thoroughly that the teacher thought I plagiarized it because it was like, it was miles beyond what a high schooler would write, what was expected to write. And so it was one of those things when it came time to go to college, um, you know, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't a question of if I was going to college, it was like, okay, where are you going to college? Because like my mom wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna just let me not go. Um, but also, you know, when I thought about the majors, right, I, I was immediately like, nope, I'm going, I'm going into geography. That was actually the big determining factor where I applied to school. I was like, does it have a geography program? If it doesn't, I'm not, I'm not applying here. If it does, then, then I am. And so that was, that was what led me to it. Um, and then when I got to school, I kind of thought, well, what do I want to do with a geography degree? And I kind of thought, well, maybe I want to do like land surveying, or maybe I want to be a cartographer. Um, but the American Indian Center at my school, we would do this yearly spring break service trip, and we would go out. They, they had a relationship with the Northern Cheyenne Nation in Montana, and we would go out there. And so the year that I went, we went out there. And they took us on a tour of the communities and they told us the story of the Northern Cheyenne people. And one of the big stories, big, big parts of their history is they said, well, we, our homeland is here in Montana, in the mountains, in these foothills. We were relocated down to the Great Plains by the U.S. during, you know, the era of, of treaty making and treaty breaking and, and relocation and things like that. And they said, well, what we did is we we loved our homeland so much that we, you know, we as a people took off and fled back to Montana and the U.S. military chased them. And there was a there was a series of military conflicts, right? Like the Battle of the Little Bighorn of the or Battle of the Greasy Grass happened not very far from the Northern Cheyenne homeland and was kind of part of this history. And they said we, you know, because of the, the resistance and the bravery that we, sh we showed, the U.S. decided that they would allow us to stay here in our homeland. And they talked about, you know, having conflicts over resource extraction that, you know, companies want to come in and mine coal on the reservation. And they, they've said, well, we as a community have, you know, a lot of us have are the feeling that we would rather live in our homelands and be and be poor and be economically disadvantaged versus allow them to basically tear our land apart for any kind of short-term like economic gain. And it kind of was something that really inspired me. And I was like, this is a story, this is a story about a, a story about a love for a place, love for land, right? And I was like, well, geography is about space and place, but we often don't bring the emotion into it. We don't, we don't bring these in indigenous perspectives. And so that pretty much was like, okay, so I want to bring indigenous perspectives into geography. And then um, you know, pretty much any hope for me to do any kind of other type of geography was pretty much on me in, down the drain at that point. And that's really kind of led me on the, the, the work that I do to the, the present day. A couple of things I have to say. First of all, I know your mom has got to be proud of you. Your mom has got to be so proud of you. You, you know, you, you, you're just an exemplary young man. And, and I, I know that as a grandmother, as a mother, I would be totally doing the ups for you. Um, so that's first. 
Second is um, what I really love about your story and your retelling of it is how you followed your passion. I think it's so important to point out that every one of us, I think, as you take your journey, we, we have something that is a spark mm-hmm. and, and really tapping into what that interest is and then following that space is, is the key to your freedom. Mm-hmm. It is the key to being able to be and living in your best space. And I know this is a little aside, but to me, it almost is about a geography because even our personal journeys is marked with a path. It's marked with um, a set of markers that allow us to be in our highest space. And so life imitates our passions and our arts. Yeah, no, I love I love that because that's clear in, you know, kind of in the papers that you write the the layering over of indigenous perspective on uh, on this space and and I was just thinking because that was the advice that I gave to my kids, you know, if you're going to go to university study something you love. If we're if you're going to spend that money study something you love because there are careers and opportunities and things that you don't even know exist right now. And they will mm-hmm. you, they will cross your path as you walk it, you know, as, as, as you get there, like Maryam Kava, when she talks about abolition, you know, we walk this path of abolition and the opportunities, possibilities that we don't even know about. Well, you you know, we will build the world we want by walking this path. But I also want to remember that not everybody has the ability to do that, right? That there's, I mean, privilege might be the wrong word, but opportunity, there's also, you, you know, there's also certain necessities, right? Sometimes, you know, people may have obligations or, or things that, you know, so we also need to think about creating this world where people can follow their passions in, in this beautiful way. Um, because that does make the world a better place when we can do this, when we're not getting our soul sucked out of us, because we have to do this thing that pays the bills. And, and that's, I think, where this generational stuff comes in. You, you know, the, DeAndre, you had talked about, you know, about our, our the, you know, our, the children of today kind of being our ancestors' proudest dreams. Because I think about that whenever I go to powwow. My favorite thing about powwow, and you, you, you know, and I, and I don't know, Carrie. Maybe, maybe the parallel is, is you know, watching watching people play spades. I don't know. <laughs> you know, when the old ones are dancing with the young ones, and I look at the old yes. ones, and I think you remember when this was illegal, when our ceremonies were illegal, when. You, you know, when you sang hymns in church to cover up the organizing that was happening in the basement, because our mm-hmm. gatherings, unless we were gathering in church, it was illegal. You know, we weren't allowed to gather together. Um, but the young ones, they don't know that world. Right. So my generation, kind of the sandwich generation, we have the trauma from our parents and then the push through uh, of our generation of trying to, you know, blaze this path or make this path even possible. You, you know, and then, you know, DeAndre, you're the next generation, I'm afraid, because I'm 56. So you're a generation behind me, <laughs> you know, kind of emerging into these possibilities. And then these ones who are coming next, they don't even know. This is all just normal to them, being able to be an Indigenous geographer and to layer Indigenous realities over these colonial spaces that are themselves layered over Indigenous reality. So... 
this just that's just really cool to me and we've kind of gone off of, of my plan for the conversation which is like totally fine because that's a much better conversations but i do want to end with your um with, with your piece about listening to native radio just because that's just so hopeful and beautiful talk and it, may, it made me think of smoke signals <laughs> don't care. have you ever seen the movie smoke signals i'm dating myself now <laughs> he starts off with you know it's a good day to be indigenous it's a good day to be an indian <laughs> what a great way to start the day so what prompted this article about listening to late native radio as as an indigenous geographer to think about native radio because i loved it so that is an awesome question, um, and it actually speaks to the importance that I place on working with people from different um, academic backgrounds as me and thinking about things in, in a different way. Um, I think a lot of times in the spaces that, that, I, that I'm in, I get this reputation as somebody that thinks a little bit outside the box, where I, it's always people are always like, well, that's not, that's not possible. And I'm like, well, that's not possible if you think about it in the way that you're thinking about it, but you know, how can we make it possible? And so in my master's degree, I was a really, it was a wonderful interdisciplinary degree. Um, my, the program director of that, of the, the, the master of liberal studies program at the university of Minnesota Duluth, which is, which it's, it's kind of shifted to something else now, but he was a rhetorician and he does a lot of media studies things. And so he was really good, or he's really good at, at many things. Uh, back then, probably the thing he was the best at was irritating me because he would always ask, well, what is geography? And I would tell him all these things. And I would say, well, you know, it, it's really wide, wide ranging and multifaceted. And he'd be like, well, if that's the case, then is there really such a thing as geography, right? If geography can do everything, then what is geography? And I'd be like, no, no, we have disciplinary boundaries. And of course, now I've really kind of come around to the thinking of like, yeah, we actually really don't have for, for, a, for a field that really focuses on maps and, and, and political spaces and things like that, it, you know, among other things, we are, we really have rather porous boundaries and we're always in the risk of kind of like, falling away from each other, which, you know, maybe that's what geography might do in the next few generations is maybe we might turn into something else as, as we, which, you know, may or may not be a bad thing. But anyways, um, because of his interest in rhetoric, um, he had me do a lot of media related stuff. Um, and so one of the projects that I did was I, I there's this television show produced by uh, the PBS affiliate in Duluth called Native Reports, um, probably one of the best television shows out there about Native American and Indigenous culture. Um, you can actually watch it on, on YouTube if you live away from Duluth, which I'm assuming 99% of the, of the listeners and viewers probably do. Um, but he had me analyze that. And so I watched like two seasons of Native Report and I went through and I was like, here's all the things they talk about. Here's the geographic locations. Here's all these things. And, and I did that for a project paper. And then I started kind of a sequel to it where I'm like, okay, so there's, there's the indigenous radio stations as well. And I kind of want to kind of, ex and those, those things are, are more accessible. Um, those, they've been around a lot longer than these television shows. So let's see what they do. And I kind of started the project and then I moved on to other things and I graduated with my master's and I kind of left it alone. And then we fast forward, you know, three years after I get my master's, uh, you know, this old, this old mentor and program director is like, hey, I'm pulling together this special issue on listening. Your radio piece is basically really close to being ready for publication. You should put it out. 
And so I sat down and I, I kind of, um, I did more content analysis. And so I actually listened to a, a bunch of tribal radio stations in Minnesota. Um, I spent like half a summer doing that, just sitting there when I was doing work, listening to the radio is like a really kind of, um, it was really a really relaxing form of data collection. It kind of brought me back to being a little kid listening to, you know, listening to the radio when I was growing up, right? I actually, if I did that, I, I didn't watch a whole lot of TV, but I listened to talk radio a lot and things like that. And so I listened and I was like, you know, what kind of music are they playing? What kinds of messages are they saying? Are there, is there any kind of geographical references, all these things? And by the time I got done with, with listening and, and looking at reports about things, I took a look and I'm like, man, this is actually a really, really good paper that ties together geography and community, right? Kind of saying, here's the ways that these radio stations can foster a sense of community and foster a sense of connection between Indigenous and, and non-Indigenous listeners. And so I submitted it. Um, to my surprise, it got accepted, right? Uh, it was like my second ever published article. Um, you know, that paper, I, I really felt that I was like, this is a really, really good way of talking about how community can be formed in some, some of the most everyday kind of ways and how things as mundane as weather reports or public service announcements or even just the basic news can really tie people together in these really kind of enduring ways. And so it, it's one of my, it, it was one of my favorite articles to write. The ties that um, we create when we allow ourselves to just go into our own spaces. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm really, really loving all parts of this conversations, even the parts we veered off on, because I think what I'm really going to walk away from this conversation with is how deeply we are tied to our passions like we, we can create these unique medicines, these unique ways of, of looking at some of these enormous problems or what feels like they are enormous problems when we come in it, come at it from these unique perspectives mm -hmm. and with an open mind and our creative hearts. That's what's really going to tap away at some of these problems that exist. So thank you, DeAndre, for being such a reminder of that space. You're right, that thinking out of the box, that's your superpower. I would agree with you. It's definitely a superpower. <laughs> and we're into those here. We're into those here. <laughs> yeah, that was that was really neat because when I when we think about, I mean, because we think sometimes, you know, both, you know, how great social media is and and and, and it is. I mean, that's how I connect with you know, so many, that's how we found you, is right? we found each other on, on, on Twitter. And I find so many interesting people that way. But these are corporations, right? Like they're corporations with algorithms and they exist to make money. And the fact that, you know, my husband and I were just talking about the, this a few weeks ago, you know, and he's talking about Google and how Google, you know, it just gives all this stuff away for free, you know, with the maps and the searching and everything. And they're like, that's right. Because if you're not paying for the product, guess what? you are the product, you know, so there, there's limits to, you know, kind of how great social media and these things can be. And we were talking about, you know, so we were just talking about, you know, how we form connections and then, you know, looking at your paper, it's, it's these, in, these smaller independent things that we do because we've got like national radio and national this and national that, but it's these small local connections and, you know, and podcasts too, you know, because we form kind of smaller communities and we're talking to each other right so we're not as 
like, like there's no code switching. I'm not concerned about my white audience. I want my white, I'm always surprised that white people listen to this, you know, because I'm not concerned about their feelings. I'm not concerned. I'm concerned about having indigenous conversations about indigenous things. I'm concerned about listening, you, you, you know, to black voices and to Afro-Indigenous voices, because that's a world that I don't walk in. That's not my world. So I need to listen and I need to cede power when necessary. Um, you know, I need to pay attention to when I don't know things and be and be willing to listen to that. So, so that reminder that these things, these you know, native radios and zines and podcasts and all of these ways that we communicate amongst ourselves, how important these things are. Because we live in diaspora, right? We have a homeland here on this continent, but we still, but we're still in diaspora. I do not live. It's a 24-hour drive, and I'm still in Ontario. If I want, you know, if I want to go home, I drive for 24 hours. I'm still in Ontario. I'm going up and around Lake Superior. I don't live at home. I'm connected to them through various ways, and I'm connected to that geography through various ways. So thank you, thank you for this conversation and reminding us that. Geography isn't what I thought it was in grade 10. It's not labeling maps and coloring rivers blue. It's and longitude and latitude. Yeah. That's what I remember. Longitude. It's, it's this it's our lives. It's our lives. It's mm -hmm. our connection to each other and to place. And that's really beautiful. And thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's uh it's absolutely my pleasure. Yes, as a matter of fact, the experiences that you talk about, I mean, we I get I get so many students that talk about like, oh, I didn't know that geography could be all these things because the way that they, you're taught it in grade school is such a limited kind of way. And that's where sometimes I kind of push and I say, hey, we, you know, in, in geography, we're like, why is it that so many students come to us from other, other departments, right? Like geography is one of those great majors in the university that it's it's something that people kind of come to. Um, there's very few people like me that come into come into college or university thinking, oh, I'm going to do geography. A lot of times they happen to take a class for their gen edge or things like that. And they, they say, oh, hey, this is actually really, really cool. And I, and that's when I kind of pointed, I'm like, hey, we need to be bringing this perspective to a holistic kind of viewpoint where right away in, in elementary school and we're teaching children about maps and things like that, we're also teaching them about the ways that geography is really tied to our everyday kind of lives, right? That's That's one of the big themes of every single class that I teach is I say, well, geography is not some abstract thing that you kind of put away and you don't deal with it. I mean, there's, you know, in particular, when I teach a uh, world regional geography, which I'll be doing again uh, this spring at UVic, um, I do an assignment where I say, okay, I want you to tell me your daily routine, right? Where do you go? What, you know, when you commute to school, what routes do you take? What buses do you take? Do you drive? What route do you take through campus? Like, where do you go to eat? Where do you go to shop? Where do you go, you know, when you're hanging out with your friends, if you're taking, you know, taking somebody out on a date, if you're going for a swim, when you're doing all these things. And I tell them, start writing that down. Let's make a map of your daily life. And I'm like, that's geography right there. It is not like, what's the capital of BC or what latitude is Valparaiso, Chile on, right? It is, how do you relate to space and place? And mm -hmm. I think that if we do that, um, you know, 
people are going to, well, more people will come around to geography, but also I think that maybe some of the, the horror stories that, that I hear so much of people in their high school geography classes or elementary school geography classes, um, my wife has told me some of hers actually, actually she's, a, she's an audiologist, so she's about as far away from geography as you possibly can be, except I'm always one that's like, oh no, we can do things with audiology and geography. I mean, think of uh, a, a good uh, colleague of mine, um, Ariana Planey at the University of North Carolina, um, a badass black geographer who she's in a she's in a public health program now. She's done things related to you know geographic access to audiologists and things like that. And so I'm like, hey, we're we're pretty much everywhere, right? Uh, geographers have fingers in pretty much every single academic pie that's out there. You just gotta you just gotta know where to find us and kind of look for our hallmarks of who we are and and what we're doing. Um, so yeah. I, I, I really appreciate this for the creativity of it. You know, sometimes when you think about, you know, being an academic or being in a space, it puts us in a box and, you know, staying in that, you know, curvature of that, well, there's not a curvature, keeping it in the perimeter of that box. This conversation lets us know that everything can be in the flow. And I like that rhyming. So I'm going to stop right there, DeAndre, and say thank you so much. Thank you for all that you brought to the show. I appreciate you so much. Thank you very much. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And, you know, I, I can't even believe that we've, we've been talking for an hour. It's like, I feel like we've just been going for I 10 know, minutes, right? The sign of these, these hours go by so fast. <laughs> they do. All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, yeah, I, I guess you're, you're on the list to come back. <laughs> For sure, you know, right. You, you know what I was really thinking? I would love to have you back with the, our, our archaeologists and, and let's have a conversation about how, you know, geography may have shifted and changed and what has happened in the spaces of those. I would kind of be interested you mean Paulette? Paulette, Paulette yes. You knew Paulette, right? Paulette, yep. Um, because yeah, because we had Paulette and then last time we chatted was with uh, Kilo, uh, Kilo Fox and you've done work with Kilo. With like, Kilo like these three right? know each other. So <laughs> oh. <laughs> we'll figure something out. We'll figure something out. Anyway, we got to go. So it was lovely talking to you. We'll see you on Twitter. Yes, this was a great time. So thank you very much. I uh, look forward to the next time I can oh. go. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye. You can find Medicine for the Resistance on Facebook. You can also find us on our Substack, medicineforteresistance.substack.com, where you're able to listen to episodes and read transcripts. You can also support the podcast and so much more by going to patreon.com slash payyourrent. You can follow Patty on Twitter at G-I-N-D-A-A-N-I-S and at danish.ca, D-A-A-N-I-S dot C-A. You can follow Carrie at K-E-R-R-Y-O-S-C-I-T-Y, that's Curiosity, and find her online at kerrygoring.com. Our theme is fearless.